0: Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go back with me to 1 John chapter 5 this evening. 1 John 5, we looked at verses 7 through 9 this morning and we'll pick up with verses 10 through 12 tonight. I don't remember exactly how long ago it was, I'll say it was a year, maybe it's a little more, maybe it's a little less, Uh, but there was a a piece of equipment in our house that hadn't been functioning for quite a while, Uh, it was an elliptical and Melinda says, you know, we either need to fix that or we need to get rid of it. And in my mind, I was thinking like the convenient answer, well, let's get rid of it. Like, I don't use that if that wasn't obvious to you. Um, that's not my deal. And uh, I'm like, so would you like want one if we got rid of it? And she's like, well, yeah, it'd be nice to have it. would be nice for it to be working. And I'm like, okay, duly chastised as a husband. I guess I need to take care of this. And so I start to look at it, and initially what I thought was that the power adapter was broken. Now, the power adapter was fine. Um, it was the place that the power adapter plugs into, the little receptacle in the actual elliptical that was the problem. I went, that's a different ballgame. Like, that's not just $9.99 on Amazon. Two days later, the problem's solved. That's like requires a little bit of electrical knowledge, and um, that's not me either. And so I start to disassemble and look at this, and I realize you know, this is not repairable. But it looks pretty simple and straightforward in that uh, the receptacle's just got two wires behind it. There's nothing that's like stepping down the power or changing it. So if I cut the power adapter and I cut the receptacle off, I have two wires, and I have two wires. And so I just need to connect the wires, tape them up real nice with some good connectors, and everything will be fine, right? And I thought, well, you know what, that's probably not a good thing for a pastor to do without counsel. So I call uh, Jim, Elliot, actually, and I'm like, Jim can help me because Jim knows. And uh, I'm like, Jim, so I got, I got a black wire that's solid, and I got a black wire with a white dash, and then inside, I got two different colors all together. Like, that makes no sense to me. I guess maybe for the engineers in here, there's a reason. Um, but why are we changing the colors of wire inside the machine? And I'm asking Jim, so I have a black one with a white dash and a black one, so I don't remember what the colors were inside, but I'll say they're red and white. Which one goes to which? He's like, who knows? Like, there's no way to tell. I'm like, okay, well, I mean, the good news is Melinda told me if we have to get rid of it, we have to get rid of it. So I'm like, we'll just hook them up, and we'll hope it works, right? I mean, the least that can happen is you have like a little electrical pop, and then you realize the Computer board and it's over and it's done. It goes to the trash, right? Uh, So I tape them up, I get them all secure, and that comes that moment where you plug it in, and it worked. And still to this day, it actually works. Like I'm kind of surprised. The Lord was very kind that we got the wires correct, and that everything works just fine. You know, if it didn't, again, it's a very little consequence overall. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, in one of those over-exaggeratory kind of mind moments, my mind went to those things that you see in the movies where there's the guy diffusing the bomb and he has to cut one wire. That's a little bigger deal. You won't find me doing that anytime soon. For whatever reason, both of those thoughts, both repairing the elliptical and even more so the bomb thing, came into my mind in this text, which like, that's strange. I'll admit, It is. Um, But, you know, again, if, if I'd gotten those wires wrong and we heard a little electrical pop and the computer was fried and the elliptical didn't work, no big deal. It's okay. It was just sitting there before. Now it can go to the dumpster. It's not a huge deal. You know, on the other hand, if someone's diffusing a bomb and they cut the wrong wire, I don't even know if that really happens in real life, but let's say that it does, they cut the wrong wire, that's a bad day, Right? And yet what I want to remind us of is that what John has been dealing with in the text in 1 John 5 is even of even greater consequence than that. It's of greater consequence than just life here. And John's been making this point. It's not, hey, if you get the wrong wire. It's if you get Jesus wrong, it doesn't just mean death now it means eternal judgment, unending eternal judgment. On the other hand, if what we think about and believe in relationship to Jesus is right, it means the glories of eternal life in God's presence as his child. You know, if we stop and think about it, and I won't take long now in the service but i would encourage you to meditate on the verses we've been looking we are looking at tonight in the days ahead to think about eternity eternity is one of those things that ought to just kind of take your breath away for a moment to realize after life here there's more what's that going to be like And I believe there ought to be a side of us that goes, I'm on edge about that. And yet what the text here is calling us to do is not to be on edge, but to put our trust in Jesus Christ and to go, that is something to look forward to. That is worth more than anything here and now. We spent time this morning in verses 7 through 9 looking at this witness that God has given to His Son, Jesus Christ. I told you this morning, for those who maybe were in another ministry or weren't here, that in these few short verses, nine different times, the word for witness, whether it's translated bear record or witness or testimony, is mentioned in these verses where we are being told God has witnessed to His Son, Jesus Christ. And it is through Jesus Christ that we become a child of God who, as we saw last week, is an overcomer in verses 1 through 5. And so we spent time this morning looking at the explanation to the witness of Jesus Christ, really in the work of the Trinity, from the ministry of Jesus, from baptism to His death, becoming by water and by blood, To the testimony of the Spirit, because God has given His Spirit to witness to Jesus Christ as well. To finally then the superiority of God, realizing if God witnesses to something, if God testifies to something, it is far greater than any human witness could ever give. Tonight we want to personalize those truths a little further as we look at verses 10 through 12 and move beyond the explanation of the witness to the experience of, that witnesses is to Jesus Christ. What is it like when God does that work in us? How, how is that work received? And we pick that up here in verse 10 when he says, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. And so having taught on these things, he begins to apply it and says, Okay, if you've believed, you have this witness in yourself we look at this experience of witnesses to Jesus Christ, we'll look at it four different ways this evening. First, we see it portrayed in the text positively. positively. That opening phrase at the beginning of verse 10, he that believeth on the Son of God hath this witness in himself. Here's how you know this positive assertion of truth. It is first received by faith. I appreciate the fact that John, in very much simplicity, repeatedly through his epistle has been saying it is about faith. It is about belief. All the way back to the beginning of 1 John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4, he's pointed to our necessity to believe on the Word, on the Son of God, that Word who is eternal life. It has to be present at the moment of conversion. That's certainly true. We saw that back in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. This is his commandment, that we should believe. And the verb tense there is, again, a point in time tense. To go, there needs to come a place where we believe on his Son, Jesus Christ. But here when we come to 1 John 5, verse 10, he's saying, he that is believing, it's an ongoing faith in Jesus Christ, both are essential to go, I did believe back there, but I am continuing to believe on the Son of God. Even as I say that, I kind of hope that there are three words that come into your mind through our study in 1 John, because we've said them a lot. True faith endures. True faith endures. Yes, we believe at the moment of salvation, at conversion, but here he's telling us, he that is believing on the Son of God has this witness in himself. There's this ongoing necessity of faith. It aids our assurance of salvation, if you will. We say it's positively received by faith, but secondly, it comes as we are indwelt by the Spirit. It comes as we are indwelt by the Spirit. In, in essence, we could look at verse 10 and go, we're given the action, he that is believing, and the result has this witness in himself. Thankfully and wonderfully, the result is we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We put our personal trust or commitment, uh, because we've understood what God has done for us in Christ's salvation, God says, here's my spirit to indwell the believer." It's his mark, if you will. It's what he gives to help us remember, you are my child. I was thinking of it this way. uh, Some of you mentioned um, that it was actually 18 years ago today, Melinda and I stood up here and we're married. And you know, when that happens, whether it's when we were married or we've done other weddings here, certainly, uh, there comes a point where most officiants ask the question, what token do you give as a pledge that you will faithfully fulfill your vows? Well, ring, right? And then they exchange rings as part of the marriage ceremony. You could say that ring is a reminder. It's to say you are married. It's to identify you to others that you have this committed marriage relationship. You know, in the text here, we're being told at the moment of salvation, God causes his spirit to indwell us, to help us know, to remind us, to give us an assurance that we are a child of God. This morning, we spent time going to John's gospel to look at some verses where Jesus said, hey, after I leave, the Father's going to send the comforter, and here's what he's going to do. It's that assuring, comforting, paraclete kind of work. This evening, we'll go to some non-John verses, if you will, that I hope are equally as precious, probably more well-known for us, to go, hey, remember what you have. God's put a If you've believed and are believing on Jesus Christ, God indwells you through his spirit, which is amazing, undeserved mercy from God. So think of it this way: Romans 8, verse 16, right? The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. It's very similar there in Romans 8:16 to what John's been saying here, that you are God's child by faith. And Paul just says it simply: God's spirit works within your spirit to tell you, you belong to him, you're his child. And again, Galatians chapter 4 verse 6, because ye are sons, because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. It is a wonderful privilege that I do you think we tend to take for granted that God says, I'm going to give you assurance because I'm going to take the third member of the Godhead, the Spirit of God, and I am going to put him in your heart. He's going to testify that you are a child of God, that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. It is so kind and merciful of God to help us with assurance Again, all kinds of experiences, feelings, circumstances, criticism can cause us to question, to doubt, to struggle, to wonder, did I I mean what I said? Did I do the right thing? Really, in light of the way that I'm living, could this be true? And part of what God has done to help give us assurance as we particularly work through First John, is to say, here is my spirit. You've believed on Jesus Christ, and continuing to believe on him, he indwells us by the Spirit of God. I briefly touched it this morning, but I'll come back and mention it tonight again, that that is why the instruction of Ephesians 4.30 is so important for us. Where it says, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. To go, you know, just as in Ephesians 1, you've been marked as this down payment, if you will, this earnest of your inheritance by the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit of God because He is the one who seals you until the day of redemption. To go, I want to be sensitive to the conviction of the Spirit to sin. To go, I need to repent of that. I need to make that right. I want to be sensitive to the prompting of the Spirit in areas where I need to serve or where I need to grow or where my thoughts or my attitude need to change. Or when the Spirit of God opens my eyes to the truth of the Word, I want to make sure that I believe that truth, that I obey that truth. Because I don't want in any way to harm the Spirit's witness as He is a reminder of and a comforter of, here's what God has done in Christ. I think it's very easy for us to have the Spirit prompt in today's world. And because of busyness, because of self-centeredness, because of just all the distractions that are out there to kind of plow on and forget. You know what? The Spirit of God's challenged me. The Spirit of God's convicted me. The Spirit of God has prompted me and go, you know what? I need to follow through because God has indwelt us with his Spirit to give us assurance that we have believed on Jesus Christ, to give witness to Jesus Christ. And so again, as we look at the experience of the witness to Jesus Christ, we start positively, noting that it is received by faith and it involves the indwelling of the Spirit. Now we look at the experience, secondly, negatively, negatively. We could almost take this for granted at this point because John has so often, in First John, expressed both sides of an issue. In fact, he's going to do it again in the final verse that we're going to consider tonight, but he does it here in verse 10 he often starts asserting what is true. He that believes has this witness in himself. But as the Spirit continues to direct him, he doesn't leave any question about the other side of the issue. He's very direct, painting it black and white. On the other hand, the one who doesn't believe, here's what's true of him. And so we want to look here at the negative response to God's witness. And we could summarize that negative response as both an action and and this time an accusation. In the previous verse, it was kind of an action. He that believes has this result. Here he's saying, he who does this, this action, actually makes this accusation against God. The action is described negatively as he that believeth not God. Very simply put, the one who is not believing the witness that God has given about his son, Jesus Christ, to go, he is the Messiah, he is the anointed one, he is the Son of God, he is the Savior, is the one who is guilty of what the text says here. He's rejected Jesus. Again, if you look down, just glance down, skip a phrase to the end of verse 10, he says, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his son. That word record is our word witness again to go, this individual is not believing what God himself has said about his son that he has sent. We spent time this morning again even looking at some of the witnesses that God gave and his commendation of his son. But beyond the action of not believing, look at how John, the Spirit of God through John, makes this indictment again against the one who's not believing he says, the one who doesn't do this actually seeks to make God a liar. The accusation there is in the middle of verse 10, he that believeth not God hath made him a liar. He's rejecting God's witnesses, saying, I don't believe what God has revealed in the record of his son, end of the verse. And so he's painting God to be a liar. It's like what we saw back in 1 John 1, verse 10, that If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. Like, to go, hey, I don't have any problem with sin. I don't sin. He's like, that's not true. Okay? We're actually countering what God has revealed. Here he comes back again using similar language to say that this individual who has come to believe that God's record about Jesus isn't true is seeking to make God out as a liar. He's come in the past to believe God wasn't right. He continues to believe so. We could maybe say it in a way that I think helps our thinking this way. He's designated God as unreliable or not trustworthy. You no, know, I, don't, I don't buy what God says. I would remind you, sadly, but I think importantly, that we live in a world today, particularly in America that at one point people looked and went, well, America's like a Christian nation. Like there's a lot of people who believe and man, there's a lot of good heritage there to realize there are a lot of people today who go, yeah, I used to believe that. Or yeah, people used to believe that, but that's so outdated. And they look and go, I don't buy that anymore. And in the pluralistic kind of postmodern idea of our day, it's like, well, there's lots of good concepts of God. And even as we saw this morning, John's been hammering home, there's really only one that we can believe on, it's Jesus Christ, and the Spirit will give witness to that truth, which is the only truth. We certainly live in a day where there are plenty of people who don't believe what God has revealed about His Son. I mean, all you have to do is listen to the statements of many, hopefully not us, but I'd encourage us to be careful about what we say, where people go, well, you know, my concept of God is just kind of like... I don't think Jesus would ever, it's like, well, let's make sure that if we make those statements, that they're dictated here, right? Because like, I don't understand how God could be loving and do, it's like, well, if, if in Scripture we see God does, we can't disagree with His record. What we're reading about in verse 10 is certainly a serious offense to doubt God, to make him out to be a liar or unreliable, it certainly deserves condemnation and judgment. Already in verse 10, where we've started tonight, John's painted a very clear dichotomy. There's two groups of people. The believing, they have a witness in themselves. The unbelieving, those who doubt what God has said, they make him out to be a liar. we continue to look at the experience, the witness to Jesus Christ, we've looked at it positively and negatively. Third, we want to look at it in the text graciously. Graciously. There's probably a number of adverbs we could use to describe what verse 11 says, but I hope, again, it's a wonderful truth for you to consider because what's at stake is eternal life. God's made it freely available through his son. I didn't take you back there. You can flip back and look, but even at the outset of his letter in 1 John 1, 1-3, John has said, we're telling you what we've seen, what we've heard, what our hands have handled of the word of life because that he has eternal life. Right at the beginning of the letter, he pointed to that reality. Now as he gets ready to conclude, he's coming back to it. And so we read these words in verse 11. And this is the record. That word record, as you might guess by now, is our word witness yet again. This is what we know to be true that God has given to us eternal life. It's incredibly gracious of God, the one that we've sinned against in rebellion, to go, God has made freely available. He's given eternal life. Three thoughts emerge as we consider this thought. One, this happened in the past. Again, the verb tenses are, Heiress to go, God has already done this. Historically, we can point back and say, Jesus came, He lived, He died, He rose again, He accomplished what was necessary for salvation so that eternal life could be freely offered. And yet He has given us eternal life that now we as believers can possess presently. So, one, this experience to witness to Jesus Christ graciously happened in the past kind of as a theological thought or maybe a scriptural thought from other texts in 1 John, we say, secondly, this not only happened in the past, it's given as a promise. I want to encourage us to focus in on and to rejoice in the fact that this is something God's committed himself to. To go, yes, there is life after here and now. Yes, it matters for eternity. But God has made a promise to believers through His Son, Jesus Christ. John pointed to this back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 25, when he said this, this is the promise that He had promised us even eternal life. I don't want to go back and preach that text again or take too much of our time, but it's in that whole text about Antichrist and They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. And it's in the middle of that whole discussion where he goes, remember what God has promised you, eternal life. In mercy, God has graciously committed to give eternal life with him through his son, Jesus Christ. That was our created purpose, to have fellowship with God, to find our fullest sense of satisfaction and joy in being rightly related to him. Sin intervened. And now we're reminded again that through Christ, there is this promise, this hope of eternal life. So this happened in the past. It's given in a promise and then almost goes without stating, but we see it in the text, so we'll note it. This occurs through a person. This occurs through a person. Lest we have any doubt, he says, this life is in his Son." He's not telling us this life is found in one's own God concept, right? This life is found in the multitude of religions available today. This life is found dependent on how good you do in meriting God's favor. No, John very simply says this life is in his son. Eternal life is found in the word of life, Jesus Christ. That's why he started his letter that way. Or we go to uh, John 14 in Jesus' own words to go, this life is found in the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. There's no other means to this promise but through Jesus Christ. Again, it's a wonderful truth to say, the experience of the witness is graciously given because eternal life is not contingent on our merit but on Jesus. It is not earned but received by faith. So as we look at this experience of God's witness to Christ, we've looked at it positively, negatively, and then third, graciously as a promise. Finally, as we come to verse 12, we want to consider it distinctively. Distinctively. We've already looked at a strong dichotomy in verse 10. We see it simply restated in verse 12. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. He paints it so very clear, which on the one hand, we ought to take the simplicity of it and value it when it comes to our own need for assurance of salvation. Perhaps you've been where I have been many years ago as a young person going, did I say the right thing? Did I mean what I said? Do I remember all the details clearly? How do I know that I'm a Christian? And I have that testimony?" Like some of you where it's like I feel like I prayed thousands of times God if I'm not saved please save me like John is wonderfully simple here it's like so what do you believe about Jesus right I can go back now and tell you yes I do believe it was November of 1986 when I trust Lord Jesus Christ as my savior and go through that do I remember exactly every word I prayed no but ask me what I believe about Jesus because he tells us here, the one who has the Son, the one who has believed on Jesus as the Christ, the promised deliverer, who shed his blood, died on the cross, right, by water and by blood, and rose again, is saved. The one who has the Son hath life, and the one who does not have the Son of God hath not life. In the world dies today, this seems narrow or harsh, but it is what God has mercifully chosen to say is the means of salvation. Let me remind you of some of John's other writing just to hammer home this point. In 1 John 2, that text on Antichrist, that promise of eternal life, he said it this way Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. You know, it was a little more instructional this morning than usual. We spent some time talking about Cerinthus, right? I don't know that I'll care to study out Sorenthus anytime soon. You know, if you don't have the son, you don't have the father. And that's why what he says or his heresy is so uh, wrong. 1 John two twenty three: Whosoever denieth the son, the same hath not the father. He that acknowledgeth the son hath the father also. Or even along these lines, think of the very familiar words in, first, or in John chapter 3, not just in verse 16, but in the verses that follow. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Have eternal life. The same promise that's being noted here in the text. But if we continue on, he said, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It's like, don't get this wrong. Here's why God sent his son. He sent his son to provide salvation. But then I think of those words of verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It points to the fact that what God has done through Christ is merciful. Like, he didn't have to. If we were just left in our sin, our rightful judgment would be eternal condemnation. That is what we deserve. But God has reached out through his Son to provide salvation so that he that hath the Son has life. Even there in John 3, that familiar chapter, verse 36, sounds a lot like our text this evening. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Continues to be a burden of mine. I've referenced it a couple times recently, but I'll point it out here as that text notes it. Like, you do realize that our sin rightfully warrants God's wrath. We live in a world that wants to present God on one end of the spectrum, either God's just angry and distant and doesn't care and there's so much bad in the world, I'm just going to reject him, or on the other hand, for people to go, you know, God just is nothing but love and there's no way God could be angry. There's no way God could have wrath. And yet the scriptures clearly teach both. And yet as we look here, we see God has done what is necessary through his son to say, here's life freely, graciously mercifully offered by faith in him alone. But if you don't receive him, God's wrath abides on you. As we consider these thoughts, I think there's at least three responses that we ought to walk away from today. On the one hand, I don't want to miss the opportunity to say there might still be a need to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. To recognize whether you're young, in the room, or older, there's never been a time where I said, God, I am a sinner. I'm believing on Jesus who died and rose again for my sin. God, I'm just asking you to save me. So there might be a need to receive Jesus as God's son, as Savior, in light of the verses we've looked at today. It's as simple as talking to God in prayer, confessing your sins, saying, God, I am a sinner, and believing on Christ's death and resurrection and asking him to save you. For believers, I think there's a need to reflect on what God has done. Like, to again, just stop to think, eternity. And then to rejoice in the fact that God has promised eternal life, everlasting life, through His Son. And to rejoice in that. And then third... believe there's an implicit challenge for us to say we have truth, to share it with others, to say if we don't have the Son, we don't have life. You need the Son of God. You need to believe on Jesus as the Christ in order to be saved. Let's close our time together in prayer. Father, once more, we come before you humbled And grateful for the work that you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ, providing what was needed to atone for our sins, to welcome us by faith into your family as your children, and to promise us eternal life because of Christ's work. Lord, if there's any here who need assurance of salvation or need to believe, I pray that they would seek help or simply talk and pray to you and ask you to save. Lord, for believers here, I pray that you would take the words of this text, the thoughts I've tried to share, and use it to stir our hearts to rejoice in this eternal life that you've freely, undeservedly given to us. And Lord, I pray at the same time, then, you would give us opportunity to point others to your Son, Jesus Christ, and the fact that eternal life is only had through Him. Apart from that, We stand deserving of your wrath for our sins. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for promising us eternal life. Thank you for accomplishing it through the death and resurrection of your son. It's in his name, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.